So we're going to start something um, in uh, this month, this new year. We're going to start talking about prayer. We're going to talk about prayer a little bit differently than most people think about. It. I, want, I can't really say differently than we've talked about it because a lot of it will be stuff we've already kind of talked about. But I'm calling it uh, Secrets to the Lost Mode of Prayer or The Lost Mode of Prayer. I actually stole that title from an author. There's a book out there if you want to do some more research into this. There's a book out there called Secrets to the Lost Mode of Prayer. It's written by a guy named Greg Braden, who is a researcher and a scientist. Uh, now, let me just say this at the outset. Greg is not going to fit into your evangelical box. So if you need him to do that, then probably don't get that book. Uh, but I've read just about everything that he's written. Julie and I have actually had the privilege of spending some time with him. And uh, I'm convinced he's a follower of Jesus. Uh, and if nothing else, I, I can say I think firsthand, and Julie would agree with me, uh, he embodies the teachings of Christ. So that's good enough for me. Yep. Amen? Right. Or you can just come listen to me, and then you don't have to buy the book. So anyway, <laughs> so we're going to talk. So to start out with the lost mode of prayer, we're going to kind of use it for a metaphor. We're going to talk about looking for buried treasure, sort of, all right? And in order to talk about the lost mode of prayer, I want to just introduce what researchers say. Believe it or not, there are people who research prayer. There's people who research everything from, a, you know, sort of a scientific research perspective. And they tell us, in the West at least, that there are four basic modes of prayer. So the first mode of prayer is what we're going to call informal prayer. This is the, the prayer that has no structure, has no forethought, is very spontaneous. So this is the, the Lord help me prayer. This is the Lord, if, if, if you do this for me, I promise I'll never do this again prayer. Or if you do this for me, I promise I'll do this kind of prayer. It's just very spontaneous and conversational, if you will. And so that's the first mode that researchers recognize. The second one is not working for some reason. Oh, nope. Okay. The second one is petition, what we're going to call a petition. So this is a little bit more formal. It has a little bit more forethought to it. So here uh, we have this one says, Lord, please help me see myself as you see me. Help me to cooperate with you as I see you working in my life. Make me over in your image that I'll be able to serve you well in Jesus' name for your glory. Amen. So I thought that's a good prayer for the new year. Right? So that's petition. So you could think about anytime we offer prayer for healing, anytime we offer prayer for you know, your finances, your job, that kind of thing, it would be considered petition. The third form that researchers recognize is called ritual prayer. So I have the Lord's Prayer up there. Uh, something that you would pray by rote in a ritual manner. So when I was growing up, uh, always before we went to bed, we had to say our prayers, and we always started, now I lay me down to sleep, pray the Lord my soul to keep, right? Uh, some of you may be familiar with the serenity prayer. All of those things would be, uh, certainly praying the rosary, all of those things would be examples of ritual prayer, right? Now, the fourth one is is one that some people don't even recognize as prayer, and it's one that's really taken, 
It's become more well-known and more popular, particularly in certain charismatic circles over the last 15, 20 years. And we're going to call that meditative prayer or contemplative prayer. How many of you have heard of, even know what I'm talking about when I say contemplative prayer? Okay, great. So contemplative prayer, meditative prayer, we've called it here, I think, soaking prayer. We've called it listening prayer. But it's where you sit And you're just aware of the presence of God. You're practicing the presence of God. You're listening for the presence of the Holy Spirit to speak to you in your life. You're not really doing anything active. It's pretty much a passive form of prayer. And so that would be contemplative prayer. And so basically, researchers, people that look at religion and particularly the Christian uh, faith in the West, they would say, these are the only four modes of prayer. And they get stuck there, right? And so what we want to talk about is we want to talk about a fifth mode of prayer. And this is, I'll tell you, this is revolutionary in, in our sort of, our culture. Let's just say it that way. Because, and I'm going to have a lot of fun with this as we go forward, because we're going to talk about feeling-based prayer. So everybody just, just say with me, feeling-based. Feeling-based prayer. And, you know, I've had fun with this because you look at how, the church teaches us about feelings and emotions, and they really don't know what to do with them. <laughs> they, they have a general uh, idea is that your feelings are going to be all messed up. Your emotions are going to maybe lead you astray. Certainly, we know that our emotions can be up and down at times, right? Some of us struggle with that maybe a little bit more than others of us. Uh, so we have a tendency to just not know what to do with those things. We don't see our feelings as resources in our faith oftentimes. And so you hear, you'll hear people say, well, I'm not moved by what I feel. I'm not moved by what I see. I'm only moved by what I believe, right? But how many of you know that's totally not true? Because actually to be motivated, <laughs> to have motivation, to be moved to want to do anything, to be inspired is to have a feeling. And the truth is, you, you really don't believe something that you're not emotionally invested in, right? Now, if you don't believe me, just go back about three months, what a, <laughs> right, to the crazy political season that we just came out of. And people are very invested in their outcomes because they're very invested in their beliefs, right? Their beliefs. So the more emotionally invested you are in something, the more you actually believe that. Otherwise, it's just a thought. So to say I'm not moved by what I feel is to completely deny reality. (laughs) You can't be moved without a feeling. Now, I understand what we're getting at. We're trying to say don't go out and act crazy because your emotions are messed up, right? And so use something to kind of regulate your emotions and don't go out and make dumb decisions that are going to mess up your life. Because sometimes when we make emotional decisions, they can have... Uh, painful consequences, right? So that's really what we're talking about. But I think in order for us to have uh, effective prayer that actually can change something, we need to understand that our feelings are a resource for us. And that's why I use the, the kind of searching for lost treasure. Because what I want to suggest to you uh, this morning is that God has put incredible treasure inside of us as human beings. Just as human beings in general. That there is something very unique, very significant, and very powerful about being made in the image of God. And it's unfortunate for us, and I'm going to get back on my soapbox. You're going to have to excuse me for a while. You know how I am. I get 
something and I, I just can't get off of it until I beat it in the dirt, right? But in our Western society, our Western theological tradition has been shaped primarily from the fourth century. And uh, a lot of it was based on politics and all kinds of different things. You don't need to know all that. But it's been based on a doctrine that was introduced by a guy named Augustine called Original Sin. And the whole reason that the, the traditions, various different Christian traditions, do infant baptism comes from this idea that everybody is born totally corrupt. Now, in the, in the Reformation, John Calvin picked up on that. And he took it to a whole new level that Augustine never even thought about. And so if we're Protestants, if we're evangelicals in the United States, and really our Western culture has been founded on this belief that humanity cannot be trusted, that humanity is rotten to the core, etc. and so on, right? And I use the example, if you weren't here Christmas Eve, I'll share it with you, because maybe you weren't here. But in our Christmas Eve service, I used the example that in the Reformation, what they would say is that humanity, and I'm sorry if this offends you, but it, hey, it's part of our heritage, uh, that humanity is like, a human being is like a pile of dung, a pile of poop, Right? And that Jesus came and he's like the snow. And so when you receive Christ, you get his righteousness. And so it's like God, it's like, uh, uh, God takes the snow of Christ's righteousness and he throws it over a pile of poop. And there you are. And he sees you through Christ. Right? And so what I'm suggesting to you is maybe it's the other way around. Maybe as human beings, every human being, maybe carries the image of God and something of the light of Christ on the inside of them. The Gospel of John says that, that Christ is the light and that He gives light to every person who comes into the world. That's the Gospel of John. Right? So if we take our theology from John and not from Augustine, then what we can or take our lead from that, then what we can say is that there's something incredible about humanity. There's something incredible about every human being who's made in the image of God. And sin is that which taints that image. That's why you're cleansed from sin. Think about it. You can't cleanse poop. <laughs> well. <laughs> Do you understand what I'm saying? But if, it, but if sin is something that taints our life, it's something that mars our life, it's something that mars the incredible image of God that is on the inside of us, then when we're cleansed from sin, that thing is removed from us. So really, following Jesus is not so much about becoming something new as much as it is about becoming authentically who you are to begin with. Which means that you and I, inside, just we are this incredible treasure that God has, and, and we look outside of ourselves to, for things that really, if we would just discover who we are as the image of God and who God has called us to be as a, a nation of kings and priests, and if we could step into that role and understand what it means to do that, then really we become the brokers of hope more than any other people group on the planet. We become the brokers of hope to humanity and to all of creation. It's absolutely true. But we have to learn how to speak to people, not from the judgment seat, but from the mercy seat. Amen? All right. So, feeling-based prayer. One of the treasures that I would say, then, that God has put inside of us is our feelings. That's why the graphic from... Who knows what that graphic's from? Inside out, right? Because your feelings are not your enemy. They're an incredible resource and an incredibly important part of who you are. Now, in order to understand prayer, 
the way we want to look at it, I want to challenge, I want to look at some of the beliefs that we've been given in our Western culture, both good and bad. Uh, not everything about Western culture certainly is bad. I don't want you to get that impression. Uh, but uh, there, there are some things that we are taught about power, because if we're talking about prayer, we're talking about, on some level, at least in this lost mode of prayer, we're talking about the power to change something. We're talking about the, the, the ability to tap into something that allows you to change your life, that allows you to change your circumstances, that empowers you to move mountains. Are you breathing? Okay, so so we're talking about tapping into power, but if we're going to understand, we, we have to look at maybe how we think about power and how we've been taught, uh, really almost seduced into thinking about power. And so for us, the, the way, and this is true of every human culture, this isn't just true of us in the West. In fact, in a minute, we're going to find out that, that Western, particularly American, uniquely American society uh, is founded upon the principle of empowering, of, of, of helping you to discover your power as a person and as an individual. And so I think as Americans, we're ahead of the, the curve more maybe than any other culture that has ever existed. But you look at power, the way power is structured in human culture, and I can come up with three primary ways that power is structured in our societies. The first one, obviously, is political power. Who's, who's making the decisions from a governmental, or you might call it governmental power, uh, from a governmental or political perspective or ideology, who's making decisions for us, as a corporate people as we go forward, both local, national, whatever. So those are the people in power, right? Now, if you don't hold office, now I know we vote, but I think we've even probably kind of gotten this idea because of the Internet and 24-hour news cycles and whatever, and we realize the massive amounts of people out there, we have a tendency to think even our vote doesn't count, right? So we sort of disempower ourselves. But if you look at it, if you're, unless you're holding office, unless you're lobbying or doing something, or you have a lot of, we'll get to this, this is another one, financial power, you, you don't have it. And, and that's one of the reasons politics can be so powerful for people is because it can leave you in a place where you feel very powerless. So that's the first thing, political power. The second thing would be, obviously, religious power, Right? And this is very powerful. Now, this is the this is the power of ideas, but uh, they're ideas that that can be enforced in certain contexts. And typically, religion. When we define religion, we have a tendency to use it as a negative term. And really, religion in and of itself is not a negative term. But there is a religious power that is disempowering to you and I as individuals. And really, the whole idea of original sin was designed to disempower you, to tell you that you're horrible, you're rotten, you're, you're rotten to the core, you can't trust anything about yourself. Really, that was, the, that was the push behind it. You can't trust your heart, you can't trust your desires, you can't trust your feelings, you can't trust your thinking, you can't trust your knowledge, so you need somebody to, to inform you. You need somebody to tell you how to think. And, and particularly in the way that some things can be structured, you have to come through that structure, that religious structure, in order to get to God. Or worst case scenario, you have to come through that religious structure to be saved for eternity. 
That's pretty powerful. That's a lot of power to be managing over people's lives. Right? And it was the abuses of that power that caused the Reformation to begin with. Right? So we know these things. All right. Then the third one is financial power. Financial empowerment. So think about it. If, if you're not in the right clergy setting or part of the right church, then the church has the power. You don't have the power. <laughs> Politically, the, the people in office have the power. You don't have the power. And then even financially, we can begin to look at that. And no matter how much financial empowerment you think you have, there's always people that have more financial empowerment than what you have. Right? Now, what's interesting about this, when you look at the cross, when you look at what Jesus did, really you find these three things in operation because you have Rome and you have the corrupt temple system uh, in Israel uniting as a power to put Jesus to death, right? So you you see the power structure in play there. And then you also see Judas betraying Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. So you have this whole concept of the political powers, the uh, religious powers, and even a glimpse of the financial powers putting Christ to death. And everything Jesus taught was for us to disavow. It doesn't mean that we can't be involved in these things, but we're supposed to, from, from our identity, we're supposed to disavow, really, participation in those three powers. That's really what Jesus taught. Are you breathing? (laughs) And so the resurrection, I mean, there's many different ways we can look at this, but the resurrection is the vindication. Watch this. It's the vindication of the individual in the image of God as the ultimate power. That one of the messages there is, is that we can become more fully empowered when we renounce the false power structures of a culture and of a society and begin to discover something of what God placed inside of us. Does that make sense? Which brings me to this. So if you read the words, the Declaration of Independence, the second paragraph here, we hold these truths To be self-evident that all men are created equal. That they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. (sighs) Jesus. So all y'all that try to use Romans chapter 13 and say we have to be submissive to whatever elected powers are in our government, you do not even begin to understand the most basic foundation of our society. Because we don't live in a monarchy and we don't have a Caesar. We have a governmental structure that is built on the consent of the people. So it is a twisting of Scripture when people speak out against government oppression in whatever form they choose. 
in our society and you sit there and try to ram Romans 13 down their throat and tell them they have to speak nice or be nice or play nice. Yeah, that went over about like I thought it would. (laughs) Wow, that was really great, Aaron. See, we're losing, I mean, really, 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 we're losing some of the basic concepts of what is so powerful about us as Americans. And this is why I I don't want to talk about race. I'll talk about ethnicity. Do you understand racism is an American creation? Because in order for a people to pin, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men or all people are created equal. That they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. And hold slaves. It's a contradiction. So we had to invent the idea of race. If you want to talk about ethnicity, I'm with you. It's, it's semantics, but it's important. Ethnicity implies equality. Race reaches back to a presupposition that people who are not empowered by the color of their skin are somehow better than people of a different ethnicity. You get it? All right. That went over about like I thought it would. But listen, words are powerful. Words are powerful. If if we continue to talk about race, then we continue to imply, because of the way we use that term, we continue to imply that there are different races. We are all part of the human race. And we have ethnic backgrounds that make us special, that make us unique, that are a very important part of our identity. And when you sit there and say, I don't, why am I doing this? When you sit there and say, I don't see color, you're actually devaluing people of color of something that is intrinsic to their identity. So don't say that. It's a very ignorant statement. I don't see color. You just devalued people. You see it? We really have to change our language if we're going to to have a seat at the table to be able to have a discussion that honors the image of God in humanity and honors people for who they are. Uh, Okay, I'm going to leave that alone. All right, moving right along. All right, so my point is this, that we have a tendency to think power lies outside of ourselves. We have a tendency to think that it lies outside of the institution. That we have a tendency to think that it lies with someone else who knows more than we do. Right? And what's so great about our founding documents is it begins to shift the power structures. To say the, the power is not there, the power lies with you. And really, that's what makes the quote-unquote American dream so powerful. 
and really anything as believers, we have to understand that there is power that lies within us that we haven't tapped into, right? Because, because even the way we talk about prayer, when you talk about these four modes of prayer, you talk about petition, you talk about ritual, you talk about uh, these other forms of prayer, the power is still outside of you, and it lies with God. Remember, prayer is an English term. When the scriptures are talking about prayer, they're not talking about prayer like you think about it. Because the scriptures are talking more about communion and participation. And if the Genesis story tells us anything, Adam and Eve, it tells us that God wanted a species. (laughs) He wanted something in creation that could reflect his image and that could participate with him in bringing dominion into creation. And what really what that story is telling us is that you are built in such a way that creation should respond to you. So there comes a point then in prayer where you're no longer speaking to God. You're speaking from God as his image, but you're speaking not to God. You're speaking to creation. And creation wasn't built to respond to words. It was built to respond to your feelings. And I'll show you this in another message. So another way we disempower ourselves when it comes to prayer is we think God has all the power. We don't have any. So we have to beg, twist, whatever. And and so think about the way we work with power structures in prayer. Think about it. If I can get more people to vote for me, (laughs) meaning I put myself on as many prayer lists as I can find. If I get enough people praying, do you see how you're disempowering yourself? If I can get enough people praying for me, then maybe I'll get the result. I'm not saying it's wrong to put yourself on a prayer list or even to solicit other people to help you. But if you're doing it from an unconscious presupposition that you don't have power, that's not a good place to begin. Do you see what I'm saying? Or we think if I can get somebody more holy, more anointed, more righteous than me to pray. You see how you're disempowering yourself? If I can get the right person to lay hands on me, go to the right meeting. All right. Or if I can find the right magic words to say. In Jesus' name. All right. Oh, let's go back to this. Let's go back to this. So watch what Scripture says here. Ephesians 3.20. Now to him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly. Watch this. Watch this. Look at this carefully. Above all that we ask... Or think according to the power where that works in us. So God's here's here's the point. Things aren't being done according to your asking. Or even according to your intellectual ability to think. He differentiates the power that is within us from asking and thinking. Am I reading it right? So if it's above all you can ask or think according to the power. See, so the first step to this is to understand you have a tremendous buried treasure of untapped power and potential and ability that is on the inside of you that transcends your intellectual knowledge and transcends knowing all the right words and transcends getting all the right people to ask because it's not a verbal thing at all. Look at this. 
Jesus said this, a good man out of the good treasure of the heart brings forth good things. Now, we can talk about that in a lot of different contexts. We can say good ideas, uh, good language. This is how we use it because we, 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 we make everything about ethics. We make everything about morals. And so we say, okay, the Christian life, like, like Jesus came to make you a nice person. So make sure you talk nice and make sure you, you, you're, cause I was reading the commentaries on this. You know, it's, it's all, it's all about this sort of virtuous thing, but you got to understand in the context, they're accusing Jesus of using power from a demonic source to heal a man they come to jesus and say you are your power comes from beelzebub you're using demonic power to heal people you're using demonic power to set people free and jesus does this teaching he says how can a good tree bring forth evil fruit and how can an evil tree bring forth good fruit a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things he's not talking about being nice to your neighbor He's talking about the power to effect change. So the miracle is inside you. The change you want to see in the world. Like, like, why am I doing this? Be the change you want to see in the world. I understand that, but it presupposes that you aren't. Do you see it? So what, what Jesus is saying is everything you need, everything you want, everything, everything, in order to manifest power out here, it's all already been buried like treasure on the inside of you. And this isn't something that you store up in your life yourself. This, isn't, this doesn't mean you listen to preaching all day long. This does, it's trying to build your faith. It doesn't mean that you just speak words all day long trying to build your faith. What it means is, see, if, if we do away with the idea that everything about us is corrupt and we understand that we have been created by God, that we have come into the world with, with a destiny scroll, with a destiny code inside of our life, with a story to tell, with a song to sing, with, with, with something that, 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 that we are uniquely equipped to give experience, expression for, then we understand that that is the treasure that God put inside of us. This isn't a treasure that you store up and put inside yourself. This is a treasure that your maker uniquely instilled inside you when he was thinking about you before the foundation of the world. And he uniquely crafted you with talents and personalities and desires and abilities and and things that you haven't even tapped into yet. And he wants those things to find expression. So if you want to change things around you, you've got to begin to discover and value the treasure that is inside of you already. If you don't have self-value, you'll never be able to change the world. If you don't believe enough in yourself, you'll never be able to impact anybody for any good in any situation, much less manifest any kind of power, because you are devaluing the treasure that you are that God put inside you from the foundation of the world. There's an early church father that the, 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 the church did a really good job uh, vilifying named Pelagius. Pelagius said this, that there was a lady, and this is one of the reasons they vilified him. Because there was a woman, a very prominent woman, who wrote a letter wanting to know whether she should forsake her uh, wealth and go into full-time uh, monastery service. And Pelagius said this, he said, to find the will of God, sit down and write out with your hand the word that God has already written in your heart. I love that. To find out the will of God, sit down and write with your hand the word 
that God has already written inside your heart. Gee, I wonder why the church vilified him. Because they want to be the ones to tell you how to live. All right. I get off my soapbox. (laughs) I'm almost done. I want to look at this, and this is where we'll we'll finish. John 16, we've, we've all seen this. And in that day you shall ask. Now we have a problem with comparing that with Ephesians 3.20, don't we? We know this verse, right? And in that day you shall ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name. Ask and ye shall receive that your joy may be full. Now I know a lot of people that are asking and not receiving. I don't know about you. I look back on my life. A lot of times I was asking but not receiving. Right? So here's a really interesting thing, and I don't want to get too technical about this, but you know, translations are just that. They're translations. Your Bible didn't fall out of heaven into Zondervan publishing so that you could know for absolute the will of God. You do realize that, right? Okay. And translations come from different manuscripts. It's really interesting. Most, I mean, the vast, vast, vast majority of our translations come from older Greek translations. Jesus, he he probably did speak Greek, but their their language was Aramaic. That's why when Mel Gibson did the movie The Passion of the Christ, it was all in Aramaic. And there are Aramaic transcripts of the Gospel of John. And there are Aramaic transcripts of the Gospel of John that have been translated by people who are Middle Eastern, who have a Middle Eastern perspective. So there was a lot of things in those Aramaic versions. It's really fascinating to read them. I don't read Aramaic, but I can read the translations. It's really fascinating to compare them. Right? So here's a different translation of that. Oops. Oh, it's right, right there on the side there. All things that you ask straightly, directly, from inside my name. Not from a place of separation, from a place of union. You will be given. So far you've not done this. Ask without hidden motive. Now we're getting down to the level of feeling. Ask without hidden motive and be surrounded by your answer. Be enveloped by what you desire. We're getting back into feeling. That your gladness may be full. See, asking you shall receive is coming from a place of separation. And really, um, it's emotionally sterile. When you look at the original language, we're coming from a place of union. Ask without hidden motive and be surrounded by your answer. Be enveloped by what you desire. That your gladness may be full. Do you hear the emotional power in that? See, Jesus is talking about feeling-based prayer. So how do you do that? (laughs) I'll give you just something real quick. But it's very simple. Instead of thinking so much, what are the right words to say? Start thinking about 
What do I need to feel when I'm praying? And if it's being surrounded by the answer and being enveloped in your desire, then what would it feel like if my prayer was answered? What would it feel like if I was healthy? (laughs) What would it feel, at an emotional level, what would it feel like if I was, whatever your request is, what would it feel like if there was peace? So if you want to bring peace to a situation, instead of saying, oh God, would you give me peace? Oh Jesus, this new year, would you just give me peace? Oh Jesus, I'm in so much turmoil. See, when you begin with a request, you presuppose the answer is not already there. Which means you presuppose there's no treasure inside you to bring forth something. So instead of saying, oh Lord, would you give me peace? Oh Jesus, would you give me peace? Jesus, Jesus, please Jesus, give me peace. Please, let's, let's get on the prayer. Let's pray for peace. Or even interceding for someone else. I know, I'm going to pick on Mike. I know Mike's in so much turmoil. He just needs peace. It's not really, but. And so I want to pray for it. So Lord, would you please give Mike peace this year? Would you just, Lord, bless Mike. Just give him peace. Just let him and Alicia get along, whatever. I know you guys get along great. Just picking on you. Instead, create that peace inside of yourself. And hold it. Use your imagination to create the answer that you desire. If I was well, what would I be doing? And you can just take yourself in your imagination and just imagine a whole different outcome, a whole different life, a whole different way of being. But the important thing is you have to be able to come at it not from a place of turmoil and from a, not from a place of lack but from a place as though, as though it already existed, surrounding yourself internally with the answer as though it's already there and holding that. When you do that, literally, and I'll show you this, there's even been scientific experiments to validate this. When you do that, you begin to release something from you, a spiritual force begins to come out of you that affects the world around you. I shared this before, but in 1983, there was a a group, there was a lot of stuff done in the 80s, a lot of stuff you've never heard of. There was a group called the World Peace Project, and they went to, this was during the Lebanese-Israeli conflict, And they got a large group of people who had been trained how to access a feeling and be able to focus on it and feel it fully and stay with it, hold it. And so they they did this in cities around the world. There are other cities where they did this, but this was the most powerful. They went into the Middle East with the group trained and they practiced this. And this is what happened while those days, while they were doing this, while they were creating this. All they would do is go create the feeling of peace and hold it. War-related fatalities dropped 71%. War-related injuries fell 68%. 
The overall level of conflict dropped 48%. Cooperation among antagonists increased by 68%. Car accidents, crime rates, fires, and emergency room visits all significantly decreased. And I'm going to use that example for one other reason that's probably going to give me big trouble. But what's new? What's the difference in 1983 between that group and evangelicals in 1983 in regards to that conflict? What do you think? See, evangelicals, most evangelicals I've talked to about Israeli-Palestinian conflicts know very, very little about the history of it. Know very, very little about all the intricacies of it. All they know is God said, if you bless Israel, you're going to be blessed. And if you curse Israel, you're going to be cursed. Totally unaware. Uh, hey, do I want to do this? You ever ask yourself why all those guys in Israel, I'm going to make some people really mad at me. Please love me. You ever ask yourself why all those Israeli guys are so white? I'm being serious because what we don't understand is there was a revival in the Middle Ages of Judaism in Europe. has nothing to do with your, 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 your lineage. has to do with a revival of faith. How many of you have ever heard of the Spanish Inquisition? How many even know what it was about? It was the quote-unquote Jews, but they weren't natural-born Jews. They were people who had converted to Judaism. Which, okay, I'll be nice. And because of all the anti-Semitism in Russia, and because of all the anti-Semitism during World War II, and because America closed its borders to these Europeans, they needed a place to send them. So guess where they sent them? Because there was already a movement to go back to their homeland. They didn't have DNA back in 1948. They have DNA today. You know what's interesting? A lot of those Jews that are fighting for their land have no Jewish DNA. And a lot of the Palestinians are Semitic. I don't want to oversimplify things. But you're going to throw a Bible verse out there? You don't even know what you're talking about. It's true. And so there's all this religious political pressure in our nation to follow something that doesn't even make sense. So therefore, we can never hold Israel accountable for anything that they do. So in 1983, all the evangelicals are saying, Jesus is coming back. And Israel has rights to the land, so to hell with the Palestinians or the Lebanese or anybody else that gets in their way. You realize there are a significant portion of Palestinian Christians. How often do you pray for them? How often do you think about them? Because no, we don't want our nation to be cursed because if we curse Israel, give me a break. You don't even know what you're talking about. I'm sorry, it's just it's ignorance. 
And I don't know why I get to be the voice of... <laughs> I'm not saying... I am not. It's too complicated for me to say what's, what's right and wrong for somebody else to do over there. It's just too complicated for me. But I refuse to oversimplify it with something that doesn't even make sense. And then try to fearmonger people into thinking that America is going to come under some kind of curse. All right, I'm done. I went too long. Are you okay? We need to know these things. Let's stand up. I love you. <laughs> Let's lift our hands. Father, we bless you. You're so good to us. Holy Spirit, I just thank you for the way you're moving right now. Father, I ask right now that you'll just begin to move over our hearts to begin to release, to begin to unveil the treasure that is within us, that we might manifest it as your people, that we might manifest it as your sons and daughters. Father, I pray for healing. I just feel like right now the Holy Spirit wants to bring some emotional healing. Some of us, we have a hard time accessing peace. We have a hard time accessing joy. We have a hard time accessing hope because we have so much unresolved bitterness. We have so much unresolved frustration. We have so much unresolved anger. So if that's you today, I'm not going to ask you to come forward. I'm not going to ask you to expose yourself. But I want you to know right now that we're praying for you. And so, Father, I thank you right now for your powerful healing presence to just be invoked over every heart that's troubled, every person who's struggling, every person who's hurting right now. And let your peace and let your patience and let your incredible love for them Envelop them right now. Wash over them right now. Heal them right now. And empower them right now. And I thank you for it. In Jesus' name. Amen.